marvelous and foundational chapter. And this morning I want to read verses 9 through 28. Let's stand as I read the Word of God. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth, and it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. And then God said, Let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmament of the heavens. So God created great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind and God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth so the evening and the morning were the fifth day and God said let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind cattle and creeping thing and beast of the earth each according to its kind and it was so and god made the beast of the earth according to its kind cattle according to its kind and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind and god saw that it was good then god said let us make man in our image according to our likeness let them have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air and over the cattle over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. Amen. Father God, we come before your word, and we do uh, recognize that it is the powerful word of you as uh, our creator, our sustainer, our redeemer. And we glory in this word, Father. It is our desire to obey it, to live it out, to share it with others. Pray that you would enable me to be faithful in my exposition and each one of us to be hearers and doers of that word. In Jesus' name, amen. When Gregory Elder was a child, he used to spend days on the beach building sandcastles and... Uh, over the course of several days, whole cities would appear all over the place. But one of the years that he went down to the beach, uh, there was a gang of bullies that were there, and they kept kicking down his uh, sandcastles. And it was really frustrating. Uh, he'd be out there building it. They'd come, chase him away, and kick all of his buildings to smithereens. Well, he finally got really fed up with this and frustrated. So next time he built all of his buildings, uh, he put cinder blocks, and rocks and pieces of metal into the uh, sandcastles. So when the bullies came and he promptly left, uh, they damaged their feet sufficiently. It was no longer fun kicking apart sandcastles. Uh, his sandcastles now were built on a solid foundation that could not be moved. Now, one of the things that I fear with many Christians is that they have allowed Satan to kick their work all to pieces. 
and they've allowed Satan to get them discouraged, to get them off track, to get frustrated. Uh, many times, uh, these Christians, uh, you know, sit down and lose their zeal. They uh, go off course. And so what we have been doing is we have been covering over the past quite a few weeks, I think we're on our 14th one, aren't we, right now, some of the foundations of uh, Christianity that will give Satan sore feet, amen, and uh, that will give us enthusiasm, will give us direction, will give us stability in our Christian lives and enable us to persevere. And so far, we have looked at things like the victorious hope of post-millennialism, the victorious sovereign grace of Calvinism. Uh, we've looked at the victorious strategy known as, the, as presuppositionalism. We've looked at the law of God. Uh, we've looked at the victorious plan for planet Earth known as the Great Commission. And that was a, a marvelous plan, as uh, we saw. It was not uh, the kind of uh, war plan that America used in Korea and Vietnam. Um, what Christ did was not to give us a Great Commission where we are just to hold our own until he bails us out of our spiritual Vietnam. He called us to conquer every square inch of planet Earth and to subdue every square inch of our own personal lives to his sovereignty and to his law. Now, recently, we've looked at a bunch of other foundations as well, but recently we've been looking at the foundation of Genesis chapter 1, and we have seen why this is such an incredibly important chapter. This is a chapter that uh, every single doctrine in the Old and the New Testaments is rooted in, this is something that all of the disciplines are founded in, and you can understand why Satan has gone out of his way to attack this chapter in every way he can think of. He knows how practical this chapter is. He knows if you give up this chapter, you've given up all kinds of things. Actually, if you give up anything in Genesis, you've given up all kinds of things in the rest of the Scripture. And so Satan is doing his utmost to confuse people and to get them to think, well, I'm not intelligent. You know, we've looked at all of these different theories on this thing. I can't understand it there. I'm not even going to look at this or try to apply it in our lives. And so three weeks ago, what we did is we looked at the worldview that is presented here and contrasted it with eight pagan worldviews. Then two weeks ago, we contrasted it with 19 evangelical compromises uh, different theories like the day-age theory and the framework hypothesis and things like that. Then last week, we pointed the finger at ourselves and said, hey, we need to watch out as well. It's so easy even for a six-day creationist to begin to compromise the Word of God because of the way we so strongly hold to one of the models of six-day creationism. See, when I'm talking about a model of six-day creationism, I'm not saying... Uh, uh, interpretation of the Bible. I'm talking about, I mean, the Bible's clear, six-day creationism. I'm talking about integrating it with science. And science is constantly changing, and so we ought not to hold our models with the same degree of confidence or dogmatism that we would hold the Scriptures. And yet sometimes uh, we even find ourselves in the six-day creationist thing overlooking verses or even twisting verses in order to fit our particular theory, and that ought not to be. Now, that is not to say that discounts everything that is said in these uh, various models. Actually, I like uh, some of these models. Uh, Brown's model that I mentioned before, I think is one of the best explanations of uh, the Genesis flood. I just don't think that it adequately takes account of the division of the waters we looked at last week. But every one of these models, I think, has some fantastic insights as to how the Scripture could be integrated with, um, uh, with science in giving us a, 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 a worldview. Now, today I'm going to try to finish a pile of this chapter, uh, and the next 17 verses have a, a bunch of doctrine. We're going to be skipping over a lot of it because we're trying to restrict this to what are really the foundations um, uh, for our church, the things that really drive us. And so if you have your outline, you'll see the first concept there is the incredible power of God's Word. Continuing where we left off last week, verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God speaks, the same day it happens. And contextually, it doesn't appear like these commands that God gives uh, take very much time at all. He says, let there be light, and it appears instantly uh, there is light. And actually, as you go down through the chapter, 
uh, you begin to realize this is stuff that just appears suddenly out of nowhere. Uh, the creation is instantly responsive to the commands that God gives. It doesn't take 15 billion years, you know, for creation to eventually begin to do some of the things that God calls it to. God commands, and it is so, and it is so, and it is so, over and over, you see, through this chapter. Actually, it didn't take God six days to create all of this. He did that as a pattern for our work week, but if you look at how he did his creative work on those six days, you'll find that he did it rather suddenly at some point in the day. For example, take Adam. You look at how Adam was formed. Uh, unlike uh, everything else where God spoke and it was done, God takes real care in forming Adam. So he's personally forming Adam with his hands out of the dust of the ground, and that's anthropomorphically speaking, of course, um, but he's forming him out of the ground, and yet Adam still has enough time in that day that he can name all of the creatures. It appears it's done sometime in the morning. Then toward the end of that day, toward evening, Eve is created, and that must not have taken very much time either. And so uh, th those are probably the longest things that God took, but ordinarily God speaks and it is done. So notice in verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. There was light. Verse 6, then God said, verse 11, then God said, verse 14, then God said, and on and on down through the chapter. Now, when you begin to comprehend some of the vastness of God's creation, the things that were created there, it will absolutely blow your mind that God is so much greater than this creation. All he has to do is give a mere word, and it is done. In fact, astronomers who have tried to describe how vast our universe is have said that sometimes when they think about it, it gives them mental vertigo, which is another way of saying it makes them dizzy, you know, to try to understand what in the world that uh, this universe is, is like. It's beyond description, and yet God speaks it into existence. Now, let me just try to give you a small picture of how amazing this really is. And I quote, The diameter of the sun is about 109 times that of the earth, namely 863,000 miles. About 1.3 million earths could fit into the sun. Even so, the sun is only a midget in comparison with many other stars in the universe. Betelgeuse is so large that if the sun were placed at its center, both Earth and Mars could orbit around the sun as they presently do, as they do at present distances, and remain within Betelgeuse. Now, later on, when I describe the distance between the Earth and the sun, you're, uh, and Mars, you're going to see that's incredible. So he's saying, in Bertelgeuse, you can put this sun, and it's far bigger than the diameter of that, and bigger than the radius. Okay, you've got a radius going, that's halfway into it, right? And you come out to where the Earth would be orbiting. It's bigger than that, and it's bigger than Mars. That's how massive this sun is. Anyway, he goes on. This giant star is about 431 million miles in diameter. Antares is 522 million miles in diameter, so that's one even, is even bigger. He goes on, if our own galaxy, the Milky Way, could be seen from a distance, it would look like a giant spiral or pinwheel about 100,000 light years in diameter. Now, a light year is the di distance that it takes light to travel in one year, which is an enormous amount of distance. Light, you know, for us, it seems like it's instantaneous, even though it isn't. It, it does travel at, at a particular speed. But anyway, he goes on, it is estimated that the Milky Way contains about 100 billion stars. It would take more than 3,000 years to count them at the rate of one per second. That just blows your mind. That's just our galaxy, okay? That's our Milky Way. If you were to count all of the stars at one per second, it would take you 3,000 years to count them. And, uh, you know, when you begin to think along those lines, it's just incomprehensible it takes computers to do this counting he goes on human imagination boggles at the vast distances between the heavenly bodies a comparison scale makes visualization easier if the sun were reduced to the size of a beach ball 24 inches in diameter okay so what about this big around the planets could be represented as follows mercury a grain of mustard seed 164 feet away venus a P, 284 feet away. Earth, a P, 430 feet away, with a moon, a grain of a mustard seed, 13 feet out from the Earth. Mars, a current, 654 feet away. 
Jupiter, an orange, half a mile away, Saturn, a tangerine, four-fifths of a mile away, uh, Uranus, a plum, just over a mile away, Pluto, a pinhead, about three miles away. Now, that's all if the sun is 24 inches big, okay? Now, he, he says, our solar system is so remote from all other heavenly bodies that if we use the same scale, the nearest star beyond Pluto would be 8,000 miles away. Now, to get beyond that, they say you can't even compute using figures like that. So here's another scientist. He says, once we move past the nearest star, even the three-inch sun model becomes too large for us to conceive. So we choose a different scale. This time, imagine that the, dis the distance between the sun and the earth is the thickness of a sheet of paper. So this is the only thing separating the earth from the sun, okay? Just a thin sheet of paper. He says... This, um, the distance to the nearest style, star excuse me, is scaled to a stack of paper 71 feet high, that the diameter of the Milky Way would be represented by a stack 310 miles high, and that the nearest galaxy would be scaled to over 6,000 miles. The most astonishing calculation is that according to our best estimates of the edge of the known universe, the paper stack would reach 31 million miles high, or about one-third of the way to the sun in real distance. That's if the distance between Earth and the sun is that thin. And God created all of that by speaking a word and saying, let it be so, and it was so. That's the power of God's word, and it really ought to have an impact upon us. It ought to make us fear. It ought to make us trust God. It ought to make us love us, that he would deign to love us and send his son to die for us. I mean, it just blows your mind. The writer of Psalm 33 says, when we meditate on the power of God's word at creation, it ought to cause us to fear him. And one of the most disgraceful things that the scripture can say about any people is that biblical phrase, there was no fear of God before their eyes. Let me read you Psalm 33, 6 through 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and it stood fast. That is why the Bible says you are a fool if you do not fear God, if you do not tremble at his word. You are a fool if you do not uh, obey his commandments if you cross him with impunity this is one of the reasons why the scripture says that the fear of the lord is the beginning of wisdom and why psalm 34 says come you children listen to me i will teach you the fear of the lord he says if you don't fear the lord you have got to learn how to fear the lord and one of the ways is to meditate on the incredible awesome power of his word all it would take to reduce you to ashes would be a word from his mouth actually just a thought right all it would take to take away all of your wealth to remove your children if your children are idols before him to remove everything in your life would be just a word from his mouth that is the power of god's word you know jonathan edwards sermon is a sermon you really ought to read uh, uh, sinners in the hands of an angry god and he uses that image you know of a spider dangling over hell by a thread and all it takes is a thought and you're gone and that is why the scripture says we must fear god but this doctrine should not only cause fear and trembling in god's people it should generate trust you know the god who has such creative powers healing is nothing for him is it too difficult for god to heal brian no in fact it's ludicrous when you begin to contemplate what god said let there be and there was to think it's too hard for god to heal brian it's ludicrous to even think about that are finances any difficulty for such a God? Absolutely not. He says, have faith in me, trust in me. Where is your faith? What kind of a God do you think that I am? He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Does Dominion Covenant Church need a church building? Well, we can go to the one who can speak and it will be done. Some things like Adam's body, he forms out of pre-existing materials. Other things... He just speaks and it comes out of nothing. And whether God uses means or he works without means, it doesn't matter. I want you to have a trust that God's word is so powerful 
that your faith is lifted up and you can pray with a true faith and understanding and absolute confidence that if you're asking anything according to his will and it's for the glo- his glory and two of you are agreed, he will do it. He will do it. He says, let him ask in faith without doubting because if any man doubts, God's not going to give it to him. Why? Because doubting is such a slam against God's sovereignty, against his power. It's an insult to the Lord when we lack faith. That's why he says, have faith. I've given the promise. I'm a God who cannot lie. I've got the power. He says, trust. And so it's a call to tremble before his word, to trust his word, that nothing can hinder its fulfillment, and to love his word. What an awesome comfort it is when the Bible says, if God is for us, who can be against us? What a a comfort it is, even though we're just a speck on this planet. In fact, you take all humanity and all the animals and all the life forms all together and you weigh them in the balance, they're a speck on earth. Everything all lumped together. (laughs) Doesn't amount to anything. And our planet's a speck in our solar system, a little pinhead. And our solar system is a speck in our galaxy. And our galaxy is lost in the vastness of space. And yet God loved us enough to send his son to die for us. It ought to cause our hearts to well up in love for him. Now, there is one other thing. This is point number two about God's word that I want to say. It's not just creative. It is descriptive. And this has a bearing on the sermon that we gave earlier on presuppositionalism. Uh, why we need to start with the scripture on any endeavor the things that god speaks must interpret our axioms okay they they must be our interpretive axioms as well in verse five god called the light day and the darkness he called night verse eight god called the firmament heaven verse 10 god called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas Now, God's word is definitive in giving meaning and description to his creation. Here's what Joe Moorcraft said. God spoke and gave everything in the universe its existence, meaning, place, value, and relationships. He gave the final interpretation of every fact in the universe. Which interpretation was in his eternal mind before the creation took place? All facts, therefore, are God's facts, fully understood, fully governed, and fully interpreted by him before he created him, created them. And he goes on to say that if we're to understand our universe truly at all, we have got to start with the axioms of Scripture, aligning our mind with the Scripture, and then going out and interpreting the creation. It is the height of folly to see science as being the flashlight and the Scriptures as being the mystery, you know, that science is going to bring light to. No, it's the opposite way around. The Scripture says that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and it is a light unto our path, right? And so it's a light to everything that's in creation. If we don't start with the scriptures, we are starting then uh, backwards and we're going to end up with with foolishness. And uh, so uh, I want you to meditate deeply on the power of God's word and the meaning that God's word gives to everything. If you can grasp those two foundations, it will give you such stability in life that nobody's going to be able to kick around your 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 uh, sandcastles right because you know the lord's interpretation is far more important than what other people think about you and so it's going to give you a confidence that will uh, dash the feet of bible's detractors and it will stabilize your life now the third major foundation and we're going to spend most of the time on these first three and then quickly go through the others third foundation i want you to notice is the goodness of creation And this can be seen in the oft-repeated phrase, it is good. Our last phrase of verse 10 says, And God saw that it was good. And I want you to notice all of the things God calls good in this chapter. Verse 1, he calls the light good. Verse 9, the earth is called good. Verse 10, he calls the seas good. Verse 12, he calls plant life good. And you go on and on. But take a look at the last verse, verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. Now, Augustine and others have pointed out that it's not some standard outside of God that he's measuring this by. He's the standard of goodness, right? In the absolute sense, Jesus says there is none good but God. He is the one who is the source of goodness. He is the one who is the definer of goodness. And so when God calls something good, it's good based on his measure. Now, get this. That means if we call anything in creation bad that God has called good, we are insulting him. Why? He is the measure of goodness. 
it, it's, it's a reflection on him when we call something he has created that he's called good when we call that bad. Now, this means that our bodies were created good and sexuality was created good. There was a tendency in the early church uh, to really denigrate and feel bad about the physical and to see our, house, our body as just being a, a prison house, you know, that we're, we're kept in and we need to escape from. In fact, they saw the whole planet as being something that they wanted to escape from, and they did not really lay hold, many of them, who had been infected by the pagan notion of Neoplatonism, they did not really take hold of the dominion mandate because they thought we need to make as little use of this world as possible. We don't want any attachments to this world. And so it was a concept of Neoplatonism. Uh, they, they would uh, see, for example, and there's a number of good men that I respect, felt guilty eating a piece of fruit. You read the bi- biographies of... Uh, um, uh, George Whitfield and uh, who was his friend um, uh, Wesley John, John Wesley they abused their bo- bodies unbelievably because they felt guilty eating anything pleasant and so they would give away fruit that people would give to them they would not eat the pleasant things of life that's a form of Neoplatonism now they're great men godly men but I, I, I give that as an illustration just to show you the kind of pervasiveness uh, by which this can infect the church and it can do so in many different ways um, God gave food for man's pleasure he called upon man to be fruitful and multiply and he did that before the fall right now people insist and he did it after the fall too, Genesis 9 but they say okay I understand that Phil but the fall made all things evil once you have the fall happen men has to make as as little use of the world as possible and so their goal is to escape from this earth uh, this world is not my home i'm just a passing through is the way one chorus goes well in a sense that's true because we're all going to die right and we need to be laying up treasures in heaven but there's another sense in which that is terribly terribly wrong and it turns upside down the things that the scriptures uh say it is an alien doctrine known as Neoplatonism. Rush Dooney wrote a booklet on the subject called The Flight from Humanity. I don't know, does anybody here have The Flight from Humanity? Uh, it's a nice little treatise, if you can pick it up uh, secondhand. I don't think it's in print right now. But uh, uh, he shows how this has affected our views of our bodies, of medicine, of economics, of many different areas. Uh, when a Christian speaks of the body as being a prison house, what he is doing is he is denigrating what God calls good. And he is failing to offer up his body as a living sacrifice, which is acceptable, which is good in God's sight. He doesn't see it that way. He sees it as something that we've got to trudge through and make the best use of. But God says, no, offer up the instruments of your bodies as instruments of righteousness. And we do need to uh, uh, see them as being able to be used for righteousness. Here's another way in which we uh, become Neoplatonic. Platonic. Many Christians speak strongly against involvement in the political arena because they believe that politics is dirty and that we will get infected if we get involved in in politics. I had a professor at uh, college who was very strongly held to that view, and he held to the more of the Anabaptist view. We separate from culture rather than the Reformed view. We transform culture. There's a lot of different views. Liberal view is we accommodate the culture, right? But our view is we got to transform culture. But he didn't see that. He said, we need to totally separate. Christians will become corrupted. They will be compromised if they get into politics. And it was a sin principle. You should not be in politics for him. Even though he adopted many other reform principles, that was one that he had not yet adopted. Now, these people will not go off and join a monastery and be consistent. uh, But even though they're living in the world, many times look just like we do, they're holding to the exact same things that drove some of those early Christians to abandon life, go off into the desert, and live like a hermit. It was a faulty view of what creation uh, was all about. <coughs> um, one of the slogans that many theologians have approved of is, you don't polish brass on a sinking ship. It says, this earth is a sinking ship, don't be involved in culture you're wasting your time we need to be involved in rescuing souls uh one other expression that they use is we need to be involved in fishing not cleaning the fishbowl right and what we say is no god has given to us a long-term perspective and a stewardship over this creation 
and uh, we need to be using it for his glory now where the confusion has come is that we have to admit that the creation has been cursed right and so i want you to turn to genesis chapter 3 and look at verse 17 says then to adam he said because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which i commanded you saying you shall not eat of it cursed is the ground for your sake in toil you shall eat of it all of the days of your life and they will say see it's cursed it's evil but i want you to notice it is cursed in fact other passages say it's in travail it's groaning there's other descriptions but it's not called evil who's the one who's evil it's adam it's for your sake that it was cursed in romans chapter 8 it talks about the whole creation being subjected to futility groaning travailing why because of adam's sin not because there is sin inherent in creation and uh, what i want to do uh, let me just give a few illustrations to try to get this across because for some people it may be hard to understand think about this jesus took to himself a body he grew in mary's womb he was suckled from mary's breast he had very physical trade of carpentry he lived in a tangible world every bit as tangibly as we do and yet he was without sin turn with me to first timothy chapter 4 this is one of several passages which say that the world that god created continues to be called good by god first timothy chapter 4 and therefore it's something that we still must have uh, we still have a mandate to subdue and to bring into stewardship okay first timothy 4 verses 1 through 5 and this now the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons here are some of the doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy having their own conscience seared with a hot iron forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which god created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth for every creature of god is good and as another version has it for everything god created is good you can translate it either way for every creature of god is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving for it is sanctified by the word of god and prayer now listen to me and this is very very important that you grasp this sin is not something that's floating around out there that is a heretical metaphysical view of sin Uh, metaphysics has to do with uh with uh you know tangible being that's out there sin is not like a virus that you catch okay it's not like a bacteria that's out there and it's out to get you sin is an action it is a choice of moral creatures and it's so important that we understand this concept uh jesus said every sin flows from the heart For example the scripture does not speak of alcohol as being sin the misuse of alcohol is a sin now misuse that's an action right that's a that's a an action that flows from the heart so it's inappropriate to speak of demon alcohol some people might like to outlaw all poisons all minerals because you know some of them could be used in a bad sense Uh, but those minerals that god created are good take rat poison for example rat poison is good even if it wasn't for killing rats but it would be bad for you to put rat poison into your neighbor's food ordinarily and the reason i say ordinarily is i used that illustration once before and the doctor came up to me afterwards and he says you know i put rat poison into my neighbor's food all the time it really is good and he explained to me that rat poison is a blood thinner and there is a certain heart medication that he uses that in small doses is good in big doses would be bad so i always add on there ordinarily you know it's bad to put rat poison into your neighbor's food but uh, the rat poison by itself is is not bad Um, let me give you some other examples 
the way some people treat guns as evil objects, you would think that if there were no guns, that there would be no deaths. But when Cain killed Abel with a stone, God did not blame the stone, right? He blamed Abel. Stones don't kill people. People kill people. Guns don't kill people. People kill people, right? And so it's very important that we not let people get off the hook of human responsibility by saying, it was my environment, you know, or it was too dark, you know, or whatever, the environment out there. You say, no, it is a choice of your human heart. It is not something that you can pawn off there. That is the heretical view of sin. That's a metaphysical view of sin that is, that is very, very wrong. Let's not call evil what God calls good. Uh, God does not call money evil. And people will say, ah, I got you there, Pastor, because the Bible says money is the root of all evil. You look it up. It does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, right, is the root of all evil. You look that up in a dictionary, and love of money is one word, and it means avarice. Greed for money is the root of all kinds of evil, but money itself is good. Jesus had a money bag, right? Judas carried it, and we know he had a money bag. Jesus talked more about money than he did many other subjects that people think of as being spiritual. In fact, in one of his parables, Jesus said, if you do not, are not a wise steward of money, then how can you be a wise steward of other spiritual things? And so uh, Jesus treated money as being something that was good and something that we need to uh, be using to his glory. So uh, what happens is when people have a wrong view, they will look to money and they will think, well, the reason rich people uh, so frequently um, uh, have no interest in spiritual things is because money somehow has gripped them. No, it's not the money. Abraham had a vast amount of money and he used it with a wide stewardship. What this leads to frequently is the uh, false guilt that flows out of socialism where people feel guilty of owning anything beyond a bare subsistence living and yet the scripture says it is good, tov, it is good to give an inheritance to your children's children. So I want to take a look at some of the things that the Bible says are good in post-fall creation. In this chapter of Genesis chapter 1, God calls both the light and the sun good. But in Solomon's time, God could say, truly, the light is sweet and it is good for the eyes to behold the sun. I think we'd all have to say the sun is good, you know. We'd die if we didn't have the sun. Now, because of the curse, the sun is sometimes treacherous, right? And people can die out under the, in the sun, yet the God calls the sun good. Now, there are degrees of goodness even in this chapter. Partway through day six, God says it is not good for man to be alone. He's not implying that there is sin in the universe at that point. Uh, what he is saying is that for man's completeness, not everything that is needed has been pla in place yet. It's not until the end of the chapter, he said, after he's created Eve, that he says it is very good. And so there are degrees of goodness. He starts with good. He ends up with very good. So, though light was called good on day one, it would not have been good for man to have been placed on planet Earth. He would have instantly died, right? Uh, there's no way that he would have been able to survive there. Uh, there's a word that is used for things that aren't good, but are not morally evil. For example, Scripture talks about a bad land. Uh, what's a bad land? It's a land that's so full of rocks you can't farm on it, and so it takes some dominion to haul those rocks out and plow it and make it into a good land. Or it may be land that's unfit. It's not good for plowing, but boy, it's very good for digging gold. And so there's different kinds of goodness that are there, and there's also degrees. Why is a desert land a bad land? Well, because it's something where uh, men ordinarily cannot survive. Over and over, God calls the land of Israel good, despite the fact it still had some of the effects of the curse. And here's a listing of other things. Okay, the land is called good, same word that's used in, in Genesis here. Cities, Deuteronomy 6.10. Houses, Deuteronomy 8.12 are called good. Here's an interesting one. A beautiful lady is said to have a good body, even though she is using her body in a sinful way. So here's a breakout. God's calling the physical that he gave to her good, and yet she is utterly wicked in the way in which she has used that body. Can you see the distinction that is there? 
Uh, many people, as I mentioned, are against uh, uh, gold or, 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 or passing on an inheritance to children, and yet God speaks of handing an inheritance to the children's children as tov or good. Ecclesiastes 7.11, 1 Chronicles 28.8, honey is good. Proverbs 24.13, merchandise can be good. Proverbs 31.18, other things called good by God himself are eating and drinking. Ecclesiastes 5.18, perfume. Song of Solomon 1.3, appropriate marital love. Song of Solomon 1.2, chapter 4, verse 10, wine. Song of Solomon 7, verse 9, and the list could go on and on. Now, the bottom line is that even though God has cursed this world, it was to punish Adam, and the cross of Jesus Christ is destined to reverse all of the effects of the curse in time and finally at the end of history as well. Uh, one day there's going to be a very physical universe, a renewed heavens and a, a new earth. God cares about physical things. As Moorcraft says, Neoplatonism is totally repugnant. I like that. Totally repugnant to the biblical view of creation. We must never forget that it was the material universe which God pronounced good. It was life, physical and spiritual in all its wholeness as God made it. It was things. It was the human body. It includes the created desires and needs we as human beings have. Therefore, we must be consistent with the biblical doctrine of creation and view every aspect of life, both material, physical, and spiritual, earthly and heavenly, as important to God. God cares about what we do with our bodies. And I would add, God cares about what we do with our yards. What are you doing with your yard? Are you taking dominion? God cares what you do with your cars, with your money, and all of the things that, that uh, you have. Now, this brings up another point hinted at in these verses, and we're going to hurry on with the remaining points. And uh, this is the personalism of creation. Notice in verse 2, it says there at the second sentence, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. God was very intimately involved in his creation. God in this chapter speaks to his creation, names his creation, finds creation responding. He makes things for a purpose. And uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 affirms that the Son upholds all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says he is before all things and in him all things consist. And so it's very important we not see creation as being run by impersonal laws. That is paganism. That is what atheistic science does. They believe in cosmic impersonalism. In other words, that all of life has come about by random chance events, self-generated. There's no other person. Cosmic impersonalism is what they hold to. Well, the Christian knows better. He knows that all things work together for good to those who love him. Well, how could it work together for good if God is not personally involved in everything? Uh, one of the scriptures that you guys have memorized by now is 1 Corinthians 10.13. And if you haven't, you better. 1 Corinthians 10.13. It is a fantastic verse, you know, when you're tempted. But this verse guarantees that God is in such control of your environment and in such control of you and your circumstances he guarantees you will never have a moral dilemma. You'll never have a situation where you don't have a choice but sin. You know, it's a choice between sin A and sin B. He says, no way. He will always make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it, right? Well, how could he do that if he doesn't control everything? It's cosmic personalism that, uh, that he speaks about. And so don't give Satan more credit than he deserves. Some people, the way they talk about conspiracies, and there are conspiracies out there, but the way they talk about conspiracies, you'd get the impression that Satan was omnipresent and omnipotent, and he was working all things together for your bad, okay? Satan cannot generate cosmic personalism. That is something only God can do, and he's working it for our good. Uh, so, for example, there is no such thing as an impersonal free market. God governs economics, and he guarantees cause and effect results of violating his principles and that's true by the way even if a socialistic tyrant completely controls every aspect of the economy God guarantees it's not going to work he guarantees there's going to be certain cause and effects that are going to happen right why because he's the one who made economics now if you want to read on this this is just an introduction if you want to read on this further read the first chapter in Gary North's commentary on Genesis it's called cosmic personalism and uh, I didn't even touch on anything that he dealt in there it's a fabulous chapter to read and I commend it to you but we need to hurry um, one issue in this chapter I think militates strongly against evolutionary thought is that God created everything with the appearance of age 
when Adam was created, unless God had revealed it to him, there's no way Adam could have known that the sun and the moon had not always been there, right? Uh, he could have not have known that the trees of verses 11 through 12 uh, were planted there as mature trees. You know, to all intents and purposes, looked like they'd been growing there for years. You know, they're older trees. How old was Adam when he was created? Just think about that. He was just seconds old, right? But he looked probably like he was in his 20s. And so immediately, God creates with the appearance of age. And I don't need to dwell on that very long, but day-agers and uh, many other of the theories say God would be deceiving us if, if uh, this world is not billions of years old. And there's a lot of assumptions that they put into that, but they say if this was only a few days old, this would be a molten ball. What, what, are, what are they doing? They're interpreting the creative week in terms of present natural processes but what we need to point out to them is that this chapter has nothing to do with natural processes. This chapter is describing one miracle after another. It's nothing but miracles this whole week that he has been producing. And uh, there was um, uh, one day in which there was an earth, and then there was no earth. Well, actually, that was on day one. There was a time, <laughs> actually it wasn't. think it's just uh, such a mistaken thing where they're importing their assumptions and then reinterpreting the scripture uh, Travis in one of his classes presented the dilemma which came first the chicken or the egg and he points out that's a ridiculous question because it's a logical fallacy it's a false dilemma what is happening in there uh, he pointed out is that people are interpreting something from the past based on the present cause and effect relationships that we see everywhere but if you only interpret it in terms of, of that, then neither one can work. If the egg comes first, it's going to rot, and you'll never get a chicken. Okay? Uh, which came first, chicken or the egg? They both came first. God created both. The chicken had the eggs already in it, ready to lay. Right? And so what we've got to tell these people is that we must not import back our present processes and uh and uh, forget about the fact that uh, there were catastrophes like the flood there was miracles like uh, the creation do not get sucked into false dilemmas in your debates god created this world mature with the appearance of age now that's not to say that can explain everything i think starlight and time probably needs some other explanation uh and uh, there's some good theories that deal with that another important principle is in verses 11 through 12 then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself on the earth, and it was so. And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the tree that yields fruit, whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And you can see the same thing, um, you know, with the creatures. Everything was according to its kind. And then there's the word seed that keeps appearing. And so all living things were made to reproduce, and yet the reproduction was strictly limited within the sphere of what is kind. Now, if you want a rough equivalent, you could say species, but uh, species is a modern invention, and they're actually, it's a little bit uh, broader term than species. But there is a kind, and genetically, you cannot change from one to the other. And uh, what Darwinians uh, uh, used to say is that complex life forms evolved from single life ancestors now that's a misnomer all by itself as if the single celled organism is not complex now they're realizing the enormous complexity of cells but that's what they said complex life forms evolved from single cell which means there's enormous changes from kind to kind to kind all the way from down through time well that goes against everything we have observed nobody's ever observed any change from kind to kind and it goes against all genetics Mendel, I think his work not only demonstrated the enormous variety that is within the kind, but he also demonstrated the absolute stability of genetics. In other words, you never get a pea mutating into a tomato. <laughs> you know, a, a pea never mutates into a non-pea. A toad never uh, becomes a, uh, a, a rabbit or a horse, a dog or anything like it. Some of you watched X-Men 2. 
kind of a fun science fiction flick, so long as you emphasize the, the fiction, right? <laughs> it's not, nothing to do with science. Because when you're dealing with mutations, you know, all these fantastic things they mutate into, when you're dealing with mutations, mutations only lose genetic information at the most. They never gain new genetic information. You start with what you, you were given, and then there's variety within that, and sometimes there's occasional losses, which are usually harmful, but occasionally beneficial, but it's always a loss. It's never generating into one kind. And I think that's a very, very important point. In fact, you know, I've got a little chart here. I think the greatest irony for Christian compromisers <coughs> is the irony that they're trying to reconcile, like the day-age theory, Genesis 1 with science. And it's so ludicrous how they, once they try to say, okay, it's not days and there's millions of ages and anything can happen and there is uh, order that's given there, then they ignore all of the details. Well, it's the details that put the lie to all of these other theories. On the theory of uniformitarianism, which most of those 19 evangelical theories hold to, stars and the sun came before the earth. Well, the Bible places the earth before the sun and stars. Land came before oceans versus oceans before land. Sun was earth's first light. Light came before the sun. Marine organisms were the first life. Land plants, the first life in the Bible. Fish before fruit trees. Fruit trees before fish. Insects before birds. You know, and you can go on down through. I've got a long list there. Reptiles before birds, whereas birds before reptiles. You'll see it absolutely does not work. They're compromises. Now, there is another extreme that you find. Well, let me, let me backtrack. Let, let's go on to reproduction. Verse 22. <coughs> God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. Okay, notice the same pattern. God considers this growth to be a blessing. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Then verse 28, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, first thing I want you to notice here is multiplication is said to be a blessing. And that is so contrary to modern man that treats having children as being a curse. Uh, many people do. Uh, and uh, here it says multiplication is an incredible blessing. Now, there are scriptures that speak of multiplication as being a curse. Uh, when pagans multiply children for hell, is that not a curse? I don't see how that could really truly be a blessing in the absolute sense but here it says it is a blessing and it was intended to be a blessing and it is a blessing for uh, God's people uh, the second thing to notice is that it's a command be fruitful and multiply and unless God gives to you the gift of celibacy ordinarily God desires you to grow up to get married and to have children and to have several children okay uh, this is repeated in Genesis 9, other Old Testament passages. Let me read you 1 Timothy 5.4, where it's repeated in the New Testament. Therefore, I desire that the younger marry, bear children, manage the house. Okay, bearing children is something the New Testament commands. Continues to be a blessing and a command. And you know what an incredible blessing it would be if the church took this seriously and started outnumbering the Egyptians. Man, that'd be cool. You know, the... Uh, uh, the, the, the church not only growing by evangelism but just by multiplying. By the way, having one child is not multiplying, right? Now, some people, can't; they don't have much choice. But having one child is subtracting because when you die, there's one less of your family, right? Uh, so all across America and, and Western civilization, there is a birth dearth where deaths are outnumbering births. And uh, we have found, as we've had internationals in our home, that this is being repeated in developing countries. They're imitating us in everything. Um, I think, what is it, Korea has a, uh, what is it, 1.6 children per mother or something like that. And all across Europe, you, you see this. Uh, Japan, Korea, a number of the Asian countries, you see the same thing. And it ought to be something that just makes us groan within ourselves when God does not bless us with many children now there's another extreme that you'll find in the church 
And that is the extreme that says that we may not limit the number of children or that we may not space our children, you know, have one and a half years between babies or two years between babies or whatever. A current view on birth control says we may not take dominion in this area. That's one area that we may not take dominion in. It says man does not have a choice in when, where, and how many children that they can have. They say the rhythm method, ungodly. You cannot use it. Uh, barrier method, sinful. And that husbands must have as many children as possible, one right after another. Now, I would much rather people hold to that view than the selfish view that we're not going to have any children, that children are a nuisance that's going to hinder us from becoming millionaires or whatever the goal might be. I'd much rather they have that, that view. But the third thing I want you to notice in this passage is that multiplication was placed under the oversight and the dominion and the stewardship of man. Let me give you some examples. The fields are commanded to be fruitful and multiply, and yet God tells Israel that he wants them to give the land a rest once every seven years. Now, once every seven years, there isn't any multiplication going on. Does that mean that the command is being violated to multi- uh, be fruitful and multiply? No, not at all. They've been fruitful and multiplying like crazy. Now they're getting a rest. The animals are the, uh, the same way. God gave them a command to be fruitful and multiply, and yet God talks about times when there are too many animals in the land, and especially some of the wild animals that he talks about. Now, we've all seen the problem of overpopulation of deer in Nebraska and Iowa, and my point is that we need to look to the whole of Scripture as to the when, the where, the why for, the how many, and all of those types of things in different circumstances. Um, Verse 28 indicates that God has given every living thing that moves on the earth as a responsibility for our dominion. And we need to look to the whole scripture as to how to define that stewardship trust. It's arbitrary to say we can have dominion over the multiplication of, of herbs and we can have dominion over the multiplication of animals, but we may not have dominion over the multiplication of our own children. And the rest of Scripture, by the way, does speak a great deal to this. If you want two or three papers, I can provide those for you if you're studying out this this question. I think the Bible condemns certain types of birth control. For example, I think it condemns the use of the pill, believe it or not. And if that surprises you, I can talk to you about why. Uh, The pill has been shown to be an abortifacient. I think that it condemns the use of, uh, well, I know it does, of the IUD. The IUD is clearly an abortifacient. Anything that harms the baby, that harms the mother, or that harms the father, I think is condemned by the Scripture. But that's not to say you cannot space. That's not to say that uh, you cannot choose to have five or ten children instead of twenty children. Uh, And that's an area I think is really showing ignorance of the whole concept of stewardship and dominion over our creation. Now the last principle that I want to mention is that this chapter shows God to be the source of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the goal of all things. Man is not the center of life. God is. God begins this chapter with himself. In the beginning, God. He shows his authority over all creation. Uh, His commands, his blessing, he evaluates all things. Everything in this creation was made for his glory. Man is not at center stage, even though all this universe was given to man, God is at center stage. Romans 11:36 says, "For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen." He is saying that God is the source of all things, the sustainer of all things, and the goal of all things. All of creation was designed to glorify him. In fact, it does do so, whether we willingly give glory or not. Even unbelievers give glory to God. Did you know that? The Bible says God made all things for himself, yes, even the wicked. For the day of doom so even the wicked glorify god revelation 5:13. and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them i heard saying blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever you are worthy o lord to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they exist and were created that means your life was created to glorify god it's, it's um, a failure to be authentic with what God made you to be to not self-consciously be seeking to glorify God. 
and you're not being authentic with what God created you to be if you do not make Jesus number one. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And jumping to the purpose clause, he says, That in all things he may have the preeminence. May the Lord have the preeminence in your lives because that's your purpose for living. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge that it gives to us, but also the comfort as we can contemplate the goodness of creation, the incredible power of your word. I pray that we would never doubt you, Lord, that we would love you for all of the good gifts that you bestow upon us. And Father, we do indeed love you. We want to end this service by singing of your greatness as we contemplate creation. In Jesus' name, amen.